0: Amen. Well, if you'd take your Bibles, uh, we're going to be finishing up 1 Thessalonians tonight. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians next week. Uh, Pat, Matt will be back next Sunday uh, morning, but I'll be preaching again in the evening, and we will be jumping over just a page to 2 Thessalonians, which really does go together. 2 Thessalonians uh, really picks up where 1 Thessalonians Uh, ends off, but uh, we will finish up 1 Thessalonians tonight, Lord willing. Uh, We'll be in chapter 5, and we will be beginning in verse 12. So if you use a pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,257, and it goes into the next page as well. But again, uh, we'll be finishing up uh, 1 Thessalonians this evening, again, beginning on page 1,257. As we, as you turn there, if you have an ESV Bible, you probably see the, this is not original to the, Paul did not write this in his letter, the headings and so forth, Uh, but it is really what we're going to be looking at tonight. They did a good job, the editors of the ESV, of letting us know what this last little section is about. uh, As you see there, final instructions and benediction. So the last instructions that Paul really has for this church This Thessalonian church before he finishes up his letter, and then he blesses them in the name of the Lord. So again, uh, give your attention now as I read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12 through the end of the letter. Let's hear now God's word. God's word says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Again, let's ask God's blessing. Lord, would you Bless this time as we look at this final part of your word. Uh, Lord, would you do your work in us who believe, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, my favorite era in church history, and as I love history, and especially church history, but my favorite era that I've told uh, several people here, and one of the reasons I was excited about uh, coming here is because I knew that the people here, I found out that the people here at First Presbyterian Church, particularly the session, uh, really likes the Puritans or the Puritan era. And uh, again, you'll sometimes hear people speak of the Puritan era uh, in a mocking way, uh, that the Puritans were these legalists and they did this and that and whatever. And I think the Puritans were sort of the high point of the church in many ways. Uh, The Puritan era, you may know, is... From roughly the late 16th century through about the early 18th century, more or less, in Britain and and the colonies, which would include what is now the the United States. But uh, the reason that I really like the Puritan era is because they looked uh, very much, they were very much concerned with how theology, how truth, how what the Bible says uh, is worked out uh, in our lives, how it practically applies to our lives, how do we live out what the Bible teaches. And in God's providence, they really came at the end of the, the Protestant Reformation, um, and they were able to take this, this theology, this, uh, these truths of the Bible, which were not completely, uh, it's not as if there's, nobody had ever read the Bible before the Reformation or anything, but they were really these battles physical battles, but battles between uh, countries and reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and others uh, that they had and and hammered out really about what the Bible really does teach and and in fact what the church has believed for most of its history, uh, that had for the most part been done with by and large. And the Puritans were able to therefore spend their time more in how does this theology now that we praise God for how does it work out into our lives? Uh, what what does it really mean for us? So the, the Puritans were very practical, and a little plug here for Tuesday mornings for the men, as uh, you know that if you've uh, come on a, if you've read any Puritans. But on Tuesday mornings, as uh, bright and early at six in the morning. But as we go through Thomas Watson, uh, one of my favorite Puritans. But as we go through his. Uh, little book on the godly man's picture uh just he's able to take truths and just dissect them more and more and more and look at how does this work in our lives where does this fit in this situation that situation and so forth um it's very practical uh the puritans were so um and the reason that's such a good thing is because the bible is very practical and again as we come to this section tonight we see that the esv uh, again it said final instructions As you know, most of you are here in the evenings, we've gone through a lot of eschatology the last several weeks, really looking at this doctrine of the last things, talking about Christ's return, the resurrection, um, when Christ will return. As we get into 2 Thessalonians, uh, you can see, if you just look over, uh, the judgment at Christ's coming, the man of lawlessness. We're going to continue on with those things, which can sometimes be very difficult uh, to understand as well. Uh, but uh, this evening, we're going to, to get to how this works out, and that's because Paul was no ivory tower theologian. Uh, and I don't even like using that term, ivory tower, that much, uh, because sometimes it gives the idea that having learning or academics is, is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Paul wasn't an ivory tower theologian, even though he was extremely educated. But the reason he wasn't an ivory tower theologian is because he cared about the congregations. He cared about the people. So an ivory tower, ivory tower uh, theologian could be somebody uh, who, just does, who you know, has no formal training or anything, but they don't really care about people's lives. They just care about having everything correct. Paul cared about the people, and he wanted them to live out the truths of the Bible. And again, that's what we see here at the end of 1 Thessalonians where after Paul has gone over all these different truths and areas in which they were deficient, he turns to how this should affect their lives, how this should affect their lives as a congregation. So, life together. So, we're going to look at uh, three things. I don't think I'm reading that in. I think this can fall into three sections pretty easily. So, first we're going to look at the Thessalonians' relation to the leaders or elders in the church. And we're going to see that in verses 12 and 13. So again, how the Thessalonians are to relate to the, the leaders in verses 12 and 13. Uh, secondly, we'll be looking at how the Thessalonians should relate to one another. Uh, so here it's not just necessarily to somebody who's a leader in the church, uh, but to anybody who's a member of the church. So how, how should Christians, particularly those in the same congregation, how should they uh, treat one another? How should they act towards one another? And then finally, in verses 16 and following, we're going to look at the Thessalonians' relation to God, uh, or really just their attitude. But again, uh, ending up this letter in this section is the Thessalonians' relation to God. God. So again, we'll start off with the Thessalonians' relation to uh, their elders. Now, as you remember, I've said many times, Paul was at this church for a very short period of time. And uh, as such, we don't know just to, uh, we don't know if, if the, the office of elder had necessarily been placed in order yet, if there had been elders who had been ordained and so forth yet. Uh, Some kind of technical issues because Paul had been run out of the area. This happens on the mission field a lot. This happens in church plants a lot when they're looking for people. But we do know, and by reading this letter here, that there are some people in the church who already are, what Paul says, over the other people in the church. That they uh, are over them and have the rule. And we see this in in verses uh, 12 and 13. He says, we ask you, brothers." So he's, again, speaking to everybody in the church here. It says, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and included with that is as be at peace among yourselves. So again, the elders, or I keep, if I say elder, and it's just the leaders, it could be elders, it's a technical point that I'm trying to get out of my mind, but if I keep saying elders or whatever, I'll try to stop. Um, But he describes them in a few ways. They're those who labor among you. So a leader in the church is somebody who labors amongst the people. Somebody who works amongst the people. That does not necessarily have to mean somebody who's involved in full-time vocational ministry, uh, but it's somebody who does work amongst the congregation. Now he's probably referring to teaching. Uh, probably to worship or or leading in worship, and perhaps even diaconal duties as well. But again, the the leaders here are referred to as people who labor among you. And he also says that they are over you, in the Lord. So over them, in the Lord. He also says that they are those who admonish the congregation, the people in the, the congregation. They admonish, and he says that they should esteem them and they should uh, respect them because of their work in verse 13. So what does it look like to esteem or uh, to respect somebody? You know, technically, Matt and I, uh, as ordained teaching elders, have the the title of reverend. And you may know that the, the root form of where reverend comes from, it really has to do with fear. And it's uh, not so much the idea that Matt and I are to be feared and in awe, but that the position that we have, which I sometimes need to take more seriously, is that particular position, as well as I would say the elders in particular, but should be something that uh, is to be reverenced, to be honored, because it is a a position of authority, but it's a position of much responsibility, and it's something that is quite serious. And again, we see that, they should, uh, that people should respect uh, the elders or the leaders in the church uh, because of this and because of their work. You know, again, as we look at the entirety of this letter, we see that the work he's speaking of in particular is spiritual oversight. And that is what he means when he says they are over you in the Lord. He's talking about spiritual oversight. Uh, those who watch over people, uh, for their spiritual good. So the idea is, is that of a father uh, or a watchman on a tower. Uh, and it even has military overtones as well, as we sang uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. But it has uh, this idea, again, of somebody who watches over uh, the flock and makes sure that they are okay. And again, this is, continues on in the Bible. It's very common. It's very common back in that time in the Near East for any leader But uh, as well, leaders, and oftentimes kings, uh, would be referred to as shepherds. A very common um, occupation uh, in that part of the world at that time. But because a shepherd would take care of the flock, they would go and fight off wolves. uh, They'd make sure that the flock was well fed, that they're protected, that they're healthy. And again, the idea is that this is what an overseer or an elder... Uh, really the same thing in the Bible, they're used interchangeably, Uh, this is what the elder is to do, is to have oversight over the congregation, to watch over the members of the congregation and make sure that people are doing all right. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, I was uh, talking with Lee about this the other day. Actually, I think, no, it was Lee uh, the other day, but as we get to the book of Hebrews... I think the author of Hebrews gives, uh, he's talking about the same thing, and I think he gives a more detailed uh, description of what this entails to be an overseer and what it means to respect them and be at peace with them. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, this is what the author says. Speaking to the Hebrews near the end of the letter, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he gets to the reason why. For they are keeping watch over your souls. This is the main job of an overseer, or an elder, is watching over the souls of those who have been entrusted to their care. So again, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account that's the elders, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So again, elders are people that have spiritual oversight over the congregation. Now, of course, there are limits to this, and of course, uh, there are people, unfortunately, that do abuse this uh, authority that they've been given. Uh, However, just like a boss uh, has authority in his job, or just like a parent has authority over uh, their children, or a husband over his wife, we're not to look at abuses of this, and therefore discard the whole idea that God has given to us. Uh, Yes, there are elders, there are people in church leadership, unfortunately, who abuse uh, people spiritually, who lord it over people, and uh, want to be treated more like Caesar instead of like Jesus, and uh, again, that is something that needs to be deal- dealt with, but uh, that does not uh, negate the fact that the leaders in a church are to have oversight uh, over the congregation, and they are to be respected in their doing of that. Now, we see part of that work of oversight in verse 12 He says that part of their work is admonishment, to admonish those uh, when it is necessary. And this is something that we still, you know, this is uh, going on close to another 30 years or so, probably be about 30, about another 30 years or so will be about 2,000 years since this letter was written. And this is something, however, that the elders in the church are still to do. And we'll see in a minute that is something that we're to do with one another as well. Uh, if you're a member of the congregation at all. Uh, This is is out of every area that Paul is going to talk about, particularly with the elders, but I think within the church. This is what I think, I believe that we, and by that I mean the modern day, 21st century church in the West, this is what I really believe we are weakest at, is admonishment um, within the church. Um, Admonition is part of love. It's part of oversight. You know, Charles Spurgeon brought up certain people who are fault-finding. The Pharisees were like this with Jesus, where they're just looking for anything that somebody does potentially say something wrong, does something wrong, whatever, and immediately they jump on them. I knew all along that you were phony and everything else. And uh, that is most certainly not what Paul is talking about, and we'll see how often Paul talks about being patient, being long-suffering, um, you know, showing some, some grace in ways of being patient and long-suffering and so forth. Uh, however, at the end of the day, uh, there are times when somebody needs to be warned or admonished about something uh, in their life or something that has happened, and it is up to leadership uh, to do something like that. Um, I don't need to, to tell y'all that, of course, in our modern day, uh, as you look at uh, contemporary uh, conceptions of uh, of parenting and teaching and uh, in the church and so forth, you get as far away as possible from any sort of admonishment. You even get this with people with their, with their dogs. Uh, I've seen people before, it's all positive training, you never tell a dog no, and just, I mean, it's ridiculous, but uh, you know, this is the way of the world this is carried on to children, of, and so forth as well. I saw this uh, one time Becky was teaching in Charlotte, and remember there being a parent there, uh, this lady who was with her wife, but with their little girl. And I remember her talking to her daughter who was doing something as during a, I think, a back-to-school thing or something like that. And hearing the parent tell her five- or six-year-old daughter. Now, I would recommend you not do that. You know, that would not be my advice for a kid doing something. She would not tell her, do not do that, cut it out, stop, whatever. It was all in these positive recommendations. I don't think that's a good idea. Or I think she'd even put it, that saying don't might be too strong. But I remember just seeing this, and I couldn't believe it. Just tell them no. Uh, so, again, admonition uh, is needed. And, again, this this idea, and this prevalent idea that we have in our society that you never admonish anybody or you never are strict with anybody, uh, that in no way whatsoever is from the Bible. That is not God's way. We see here again that elders are told to admonish those uh, who need to be admonished. Again, this might come from, from uh, somebody who is ignorant. They might think this is really a better way or something like that, uh, but again, it, it can often, I think it often does, and I think even in our own lives, we can realize that this can come from a place of cowardice uh, and self-interest. Where again, I don't want to go into a particular situation because I know this is going to potentially get ugly if I do. Uh, and again, you know that with your kids, you know that if you're a teacher with your students, particular ones. Uh, and again, not fault-finding, being slow, but if there is an issue that continues to come up, continue, that needs to be dealt with, the person needs to go out there and deal with it in a loving way, but they need to deal with it. So, we still have admonition, actually, in our book of church order, in our denomination, and we should. Uh, our book of church order, never quoted it before in a sermon, but uh, in book of church order in chapter 30, in the second section, says that admonition is the formal reproof of an offender by a church court, warning him of his guilt and danger and exhorting him to be more circumspect and watchful in the future. This is something that's rarely done in the presbyteries and uh, rarely done in presbyteries period. Uh, It does happen, uh, but there are times when people do things, and again, this isn't where you're defrocking somebody, uh, say a pastor or something, they're not being uh, suspended or anything, but this is where they're going before a church court and the church is letting them know this is serious enough, what has been done, that we want to give you a warning. Um, it, it might seem unloving, but it's not. It's actually the loving thing to do when it's done correctly. So the first thing we see, again, is that uh, the leaders are to admonish those who, are over, who they are over. The ones they have spiritual oversight, one of the things they are to do with is to admonish them. And again, we see that... They are to be respected due to their work. Um, As we read earlier, elders, and we have several here tonight, but elders, the Bible says, uh, and teachers uh, in particular, will face stricter judgment. I think that's what Paul is, that's from James uh, 1.3, but I think that's what is being talked about as well uh, here with the leaders as well, um, that they will have to give an account Or what we read, I'm sorry, in Hebrews. Um, They keep watch over their soldiers to obey them because they'll give an account. So again, if you are an elder, and particularly if you're a teaching elder, you need to realize that you will one day, according to God's word, face a stricter judgment from God than people who are not elders. Because he's entrusted something to you and he's going to see how you uh, kept this charge, how responsible you were, you were not to be pleasing to the world and what our world says the elder is to act like, but if you're faithful to what God tells you to do as an elder, and you'll receive reward from God, or you will be uh, face a, a more difficult judgment in some way. So we'll have to give an account. And then he continues on here in verse uh, 13 at the end of it by just saying, be at peace among yourselves, and uh, there are people, I, I really believe, this is just as in Hebrews, uh, he talked about at the end, of the, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think that's what Paul is saying uh, here uh, in 1 Thessalonians as well, is that people in the congregation and elders, let there be peace and harmony within the congregation, within this elders and those who, those who have oversight and those who are watched over, um, it is a beautiful thing when churches and congregations get along, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And uh, while there is no perfect church on this side of heaven, uh, I, in my three years of experience, um, I think by God's grace alone, it seems to me that things are pretty uh, ironic here at First Presbyterian Church in, in the most part. Um, I hear stories of pastors from seminary, Uh, who've gone off to to churches, particularly uh, to the first place they're called to, of horror stories of things within churches. And I'm sure that y'all know things way more than I do about uh, churches where just there is fighting within the congregation and there's fighting between the pastor or the elders and the deacons and with other people in the congregation and just things going horribly. And uh, at least from my vantage point, um, I think we have thanks to give to God for for the peace uh, that by and large we have in this church and uh, To give thanks to God and at the same time uh, To pray and ask God that that would continue uh, That when we see these things we're "Oh, praise God and then well ask Please keep doing that because we recognize it's by God's grace alone If that is a reality that it is so and we pray that that would continue so again, uh, just wanted to say that I think uh, we should give God thanks in this area and pray that he continue to bless in this area. It's ugly, uh, just like with a marriage that is falling apart, as that's to be a, a picture of Christ and his bride. Uh, when, when a marriage is falling apart, it's very ugly. And it's ugly when a congregation of believers are constantly bickering and fighting against one another. And again, unfortunately, that happens all the time. So again, we should be thankful and pray for God that that continues to not be the case uh, here. So secondly, we see how we are to act towards one another. Uh, How are we to treat brothers and sisters in the ward, uh, those here in our covenant community, here in our congregation? We see this in verses 14 and 15, and we see four things that Paul tells uh, everybody in the congregation to do. Now, the first thing we see uh, is that all of us are in on this admonishment thing. So if you thought it was just Dr. Brown and Walt and uh, Richard Calhoun some others who were to do this, no. Uh, in verse 14, he says, I urge you, brothers, he's talking to everybody, admonish the idol. So the first thing we see is admonishment. Uh, we all get in on this admonishment uh, thing that we are to do. The second thing we're going to see is encouragement, uh, that we are to encourage uh, people in the congregation. Third, we're going to see that the believer is one who is to help, to help people, particularly, as Paul talks about here, the weak. And lastly, to be patient. So to admonish, to encourage, to help, and to be Patient, and all these things go together, so i 'm not going to go for long on uh, admonishment, but because we just did, but apply that for if anybody was here saying that doesn 't have to do with me, and we again have all sorts of elders here tonight, so most people probably did think that, but for the other ones, uh, everybody is to be on, in here. It says admonish the idol, and the picture of idleness here is somebody in. It's a military term, and it's somebody who's falling out of ranks. Uh, and it's not somebody who's really trying, and they just can't make it. This is the person uh, who's just being lazy. And it's really the picture of getting them back with the rest of the, the platoon. I don't know if I'm using the right language here, but getting them back in, in March lockstep with everybody else. So if there is somebody that's, that's affecting the church by their laziness or anything else, uh, that is something that, that might have to be dealt with. You know, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18, about church discipline. Uh, I bring this up sometimes at DCS, and it's a foreign concept, uh, church discipline. But rightly, uh, by the reformers, church discipline was looked at as, as one of the, the marks of the church. Uh, meaning that if a church did not do this, it wouldn't be considered a true church. And it was the right preaching of the word or the faithful preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and that was really in, in contradistinction to the Roman Catholics, so baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then also uh, the practice of church discipline where need be. Church discipline is meant for the good of, other, uh, of your brothers and sisters, of those in our congregation. So our answer needs to be to that, that in fact, we are our brother and sister's keeper, and we're not looking for fault-finding and whatever, but again, if something must be dealt with, and by God's grace, we'd be faithful to deal with that. So admonishment when needed. We'll get to what the idol were in Second Thessalonians. Uh, believers are to encourage. If you notice in verse 14, he says, to encourage the faint-hearted, uh discernment is really needed to to know people Uh, discernment is needed in order to have discernment you you need to know people you need to be around the congregation as a good church member uh and again i realize i'm practically preaching to the choir here but uh faithful in your attendance to church when you can be on the lord's day on wednesdays if, if possible uh but, so that we are to live together, and then as such, as you get to know people, you can discern uh, when, people need, when people really are struggling and need encouragement, and then going over and encouraging them, helping them out when people are, are really struggling, uh, reminding them of, of God's promises, and giving them encouragement. It can help somebody out tremendously, and I'm sure we've all, I hope we've all had this experience before, of somebody coming alongside of us and encouraging us when we're going through something difficult in our lives. So this is something that we should be about. Uh, As he continues on in verse 14, he says to help the weak. And uh, helping the weak is is most likely the idea of helping those who are spiritually weak. And it's really the idea of somebody who's so spiritually weak that there's nothing they can do. Uh, There's nothing they can really do back. So when we're encouraging somebody we're helping them get really back up on their feet and moving again, helping the weak, the thing that popped in my mind again and this is sort of a theme right now but is my parents. And I think of my mom in particular at certain times, but all you can really do is give her a hug when she gets scared and she doesn't know what's going on and let her know, reassure her we're not going to leave you. We're not just that we're not going to put you out on the street, but we will be with you. You you have children who love you. You have family who loves you. We're not letting go of you. You can, and she, I forget, and the idea is with my mom is we are here for you. We're not going to forget, and that is this idea with helping the weak as well. It's somebody who's really struggling and weak, letting them know we will be there for them. We're not going to leave them, so giving them this reassurance when they can't really even do anything, you know, I think in particular of our older saints in this church as well, that, and those who do start to get towards that time in their life where they're getting closer to dying, uh, but letting them know we, we will be here with you uh, through your life. The last thing we see here that we're to do with one another uh, is to be patient. You know, patience is, is a virtue, we say. Uh, patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, patience is something that God works in us, and again, if you're here this morning, uh, patience is something that we can go to the Lord. We can go to all these things right here and using what we heard this morning and go and say, Lord, you tell us to be at peace and I'm really struggling with such and such, and, but I know it is your will. Lord, give me the grace to do this. So, patience. Uh, we're to be long-suffering. Our Lord was long-suffering and we need to be long-suffering as well. Now, long-suffering doesn't mean uh, eternally suffering. It doesn't mean that we never have a limit, uh, to when certain things become too much, but it means that we're not, uh, quick to, to find fault with somebody else. We're not quick, uh, to be offended. Uh, again, this takes discernment as well. Uh, I think of a mother or a father, but in particular mothers, when they hear their children crying, and when I was younger, uh, as I'm the baby in my family, I uh, didn't know this as well. But um, you know, you hear people with their kids, and they start crying or whatever, and they know immediately if that's actually the, my baby's hurt and I need to go check it out, kind of cry, or is this you know they're, they're pitching a fit, kind of cry. And they'll find out immediately, they'll hear a cry and say, like, "Oh, don't worry about it." They can tell right by the tone of the cry. Or there's a cry, and they know something is wrong. It's a real cry. And again, we need the same thing, this discernment where we can tell because we know somebody, is this really a real issue or is this uh, an issue of them being immature or pitching a fit or whatever uh, we need or whatever they need? You know, we live in a time where people are very quick in our culture to be offended. Um, it's pathetic, it really is. Uh, but more than I've ever seen, and probably more than our country's history, everybody's very quick to be offended. And you, know, you walk down the street, somebody says good morning to you, and they're offended by what you said. How dare you think you can speak to me, or some other ridiculous thing like that. Uh, it is as anti-biblical, as anti-gospel uh, as you can get, this culture of uh, entitlement that leads people to be offended by everything in the world. Uh, Christians should not be like this. Uh, We should be the last to be offended. Now, I'm not saying that we can never be offended, but we should be slow to be offended. And again, we should be long-suffering and patient like God is with us. uh, Praise God, we should be with other people as well. And then you see here in verse 15, just to kind of wrap it all up with a bow, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Um, I think of in Galatians where we uh, keep pressing on and keep doing good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. That is to be our MO really as Christians is we're seeking to carry out the golden rule, to do good uh, to others, to treat them the way we'd want them to treat us, the way that the Lord would have us to treat them. And that is particularly true with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We are to treat them the way that God would have us treat them. But it's also true with those outside the church as well. Um, We should be patient. We should seek to do good to those. As he says here, we we shouldn't seek to to take vengeance and be offended. Uh, We realize that, that God is the one who ultimately will uh, avenge, as he says here, repay no one evil for evil. He's probably thinking about people who have done evil to the Thessalonians and saying don't go right back and try to you know, get back at them. Uh, perhaps they might be won over. Uh, realize, not, not excusing their behavior, but realizing that they're lost and praying for their salvation, realizing that we were once there as well and without God's grace we could be doing the same thing. So again, seeking by God's grace, to be patient, uh, to, be, to do good to others as well, as God is merciful uh, with us. And then lastly is our, our relation to God. How are we to be towards God? And again, here I'm really looking for our attitude. And We're going to look at verses uh, 16 through 22, but in, quickly, just in two points. First, we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. What is our attitude towards God regarding his providential rule? So really, how are things going in your life? Um, Are we upset with how God is doing things? Again, I think that's one of the things that believers, human beings, myself, everybody else in here today, I think that's one of the things that we struggle with more than anything, is God's, is trusting in God's providence in our lives. So we'll look at that, and then we'll finish with looking at our attitude towards God uh, with regards to his word, uh, his communication to us in verses 19 through 22. So first, in verses 16 through 18, you look here, just these short little pithy statements Uh, Just for some Bible trivia, again, people always say that Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. I'm sure Miss Mary Brown has heard before. Can our memory verse be Jesus wept? It's actually not the shortest verse in the Bible. Right here is. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 16. In Greek, it's only one word, not two. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But anyways, rejoice always. Um, This is how we are to be, rejoicing always Praying without ceasing. Then, verse eighteen, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, rejoicing always. All these things that, that sound great. Um, how are we to do these things uh, if we're not trusting in God's will? I think that's what he's talking about here in at the end of verse eighteen. Realize. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, Our God is sovereign, all right? There's nothing that comes to pass that God has not foreordained. And if you're a believer, it is for our ultimate good. We don't see things as God does. Uh, We see things like a child might who doesn't want to go see mean Dr. Bracey, the dentist. James has never referred to you as mean, ever. And he'll go to the dentist, too. I'm just using that as an example. Maybe mean Dr. Brown. But somebody who doesn't want to go, even though we want him to go, because he's thinking right then, I just want to eat this food, I don't care. And they're not looking at the long-run picture. You know, you're the mean parent now who's taking them anyway. They don't understand it, and they're upset with it. Uh, Well, God is that way oftentimes in our lives, and we don't see the full picture of what he's doing in our lives. And we look at things from a, a narrow Uh, short-sighted perspective, and we wonder what God is doing in our lives. Uh, We have difficulties with God and the providences or the things that come into our lives, and if we know that God is sovereign, we wonder what in the world he's doing. You know, we think maybe God has has left the wheel, and just to be honest, I think as we look out, at least for me, and maybe I'm the only one in here, but as I look out at our culture, if you watch the news or you watch uh, independent news or whatever, and you see things just going on in our country and our world. And again, we realize that God is in charge. It can be difficult uh, at times to not have at least the temptation to wonder where is God? Um, you know, wh- why is He not acting? You know, we'll say God's going to judge. And again, even seeing the corruption and the slide in our society and decay. Even though that is a sign that God's judgment has already begun and God will judge, I know for me, I wonder where is the Lord? And we even see that in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that those who had been martyred, uh, who are in glory, uh, ask God, how long until you avenge our blood? How long until you're going to do something? And God doesn't just rebuke them and tell them, how dare you question me? He says, just wait a little bit longer. So again, Uh, we need to understand and embrace the fact that God really is in control. Uh, That when we see seeming injustices and actual real injustices go on and people seem to do whatever they want and rob stores and commit crimes and then they're released by the judge for some ridiculous reason. And, you know, there can even be literal murderers who are released because uh, they feel bad for the person who did it or something like that and we get upset, and we should, Uh, don't think, don't give in to the temptation to think that it's because God has somehow left the wheel or because God doesn't care. Uh, God will take care of things. We go to him in prayer, but by his grace, we need to realize he does know what he's doing, and therefore we can still act this way and have this attitude of rejoicing, of continuing to give thanks, because God is good and the one who is not saying right is us, and we can trust, ultimately God will be vindicated in what he has done. So again, we need to trust God in his providence. So again, I think as we look at things in our world, and it looks like God is not doing what we think he should, that's one uh, particular area where we might get run down and and tired and and, uh, are prone to, to get discouraged with God. And I think also, uh, when we don't realize what God is doing in our life, and perhaps we have a wrong understanding of what the Bible teaches God is, is interested with in our lives. Um, there are a lot of people who have fallen away from the faith or who are mad with God, and those who have completely fallen away, but also those who maybe are not, uh, have not rejected Christ, but they're having a very difficult time. And I'm not meaning to make light of this at all, but in particular because they've gone through some, uh, some very severe type of suffering in their life, maybe sickness or the loss of a child or just some kind of suffering or sickness. And perhaps they were under the impression that God has given the promise that he will heal always. I mean, I'll hear people who say things like that, like I'm trusting God. And this is not just in charismatic circles. Uh, we're all heal. Pure people say, like, I'm trusting God for such and such to get better. Um, To pray that God would heal something? Absolutely, you should do that. Uh, Do we have the guarantee that God is going to heal somebody who gets sick? We don't. Uh, So if you think we have the guarantee and then God doesn't do it, it makes it seem like God has failed. The promise, the guarantee that they will be, uh, if they're a believer, they'll be raised with a resurrected body that will never get sick again Absolutely, 100%. But again, uh, the, pr- the promise that God will do all things for the good of those who love Him or are called according to His purpose, absolutely. But again, the idea that we will be uh, healthy or that people will necessarily or absolutely get better when they get sick or that we will not face tragedy, we do not have those promises in the Bible. And oftentimes you hear people that go to evangelical churches that, are under the impression that the Bible teaches that. Um, again, there's nothing wrong at all with praying those things, uh, that your marriage will work out, and these other things that, that God has, But God has not promised to convert your spouse. He might, but he might not. And we can't go to God when he hasn't done something that we think he should have done, and have this kind of fist in the air, in our heart at least, toward God. If we have it, then we won't be able to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, Realize again that God is good and everything that he does is good. As Kay has said before, um, and I think he took this from Dr. Kelly or somebody, but God even uses sin sinlessly. God is, is not a sinner. There's no darkness in God, but he uses wickedness for his own purposes. So again, just realizing whatever we're going through, like Job, even if there's a cloud there that we cannot see how God in any way whatsoever is good in this circumstance. Uh, the wise thing to do, because you'll be vindicated, the correct thing to do is realize God is good no matter what. We're the one who's not seeing correctly. So I'm still going to rejoice, even if it's through tears. Uh, because I know that God is good, even if I can't see it right now or understand. Finally, how we should as a congregation uh, respond to God in his word is in verses 19 through 22. Now, this sounds very Pentecostal, but I don't think it is. Uh, In verses 19 through 22, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This whole section of uh, 19 through 22 is almost uh, certainly all uh, to go together uh, with regards to how we respond to God's word. Sinclair Ferguson has pointed out that we are no longer in the apostolic age. We are not. We don't have apostles right now who are, uh, who have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and been commissioned uh, by him. And what he has said is, for us today, now, when Paul wrote this, that was still going on, uh, but for us today, this is more akin, he said, to hearing God's word with the attitude of, take it or leave it. You know, I can, I can sort of, you know, today, if I feel like, if, if he's the... I hear something from God's Word that I like, I'll kind of add that to my, uh, my idea, my image of who God is, and if it's something that I don't like, and again, the Bible is actually explained correctly, uh, but it's something that I'm not that fond of, you know, I can, I can kind of leave that as one of the things I don't really think about with God. You know, we sometimes hear that, and again, when people will talk about God, they'll hear things from the Bible, again, in, in a good context, and And so forth, and people, unfortunately, hear sometimes things like, well, not my Jesus. Um, It's sad, but you do hear that. And uh, if somebody is saying that it's from the Bible, then their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Um, But we must be bowing down uh, to God and his word. It's his communication to us. We're not more loving than God is. We're not better than God is. Uh, if we want to know God apart from his word, uh, that is a bad sign, and that's actually a sign, an early sign of idolatry. Uh, I want to know God. It's like, great, let's go to his words. Uh, I'm not sure about that. God has given his word for us to know him. We go to his word to know him more and more. If we're going to know God again away from his word, it's just a sign that we want to know a God of our own making. So again, we go to God's word. Uh, When God uh, teaches us something, uh, we do what it says in verse 21, like the Bereans. We test everything, but we don't despise prophecies. Again, not Matt's background with prophets coming in and telling you Trump's going to win in 2020 and so forth, which did happen. Uh, Not that he, I don't mean that he won. I mean that. Never mind, I don't want to get into I'll talk to you after service if you want to talk about that. But I mean, he, they would literally have people at the Church of God and Hamer come in and predict certain elections and so forth that would happen. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about proclamations of God's word. And again, he says to test everything, but don't, when you hear God's word, quench God's spirit. Say, I don't want to listen to that part. Okay, and abstain from every form of evil. We should abstain from even the appearance of evil. So this is not the whole picture, but this is how we live, again, in light of God's grace to us, in light of being saved from the wrath to come, is we get to know God better. We seek to be obedient. We seek to love our elders. Elders seek to be faithful, to practice oversight, not giving in to the fear of men, uh, that with one another we're patient. We hold on to those who are hurting and weak, that uh, with regard to God, we bow down to His sovereignty. We help others who need encouragement that God is in control. God does love you and keep His word, and a lot of times He will put us through things that are extremely difficult, uh, but it 's not because he doesn 't love us it 's in his own mysterious providence. Finally, uh, Paul comes to a benediction, a blessing for the church at the end of the letter here in verse. 23 uh, And i'm going to use this as our benediction for the end of this service Uh, But again, just going back to god's word uh, Paul even takes this Taking his word so seriously not his word, but because it's god's word if you look at verse 27 He says I put you under oath before the lord so again um, extremely serious to reject god's word paul's written this letter And he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Uh, God's word, again, another gracious thing that we should thank God for in this particular church, meaning First Presbyterian Church, is not just, I believe, the the, uh, peace that there is within the congregation, but also the fact that we, uh, as a congregation, want to hear God's word taught. Uh, That is how we know God. That is what he expects us to know, to know him, and to live by it. And then he gives a benediction uh, to the congregation. Um, So again, that is 1 Thessalonians. We'll be continuing right where we left off next week, uh, Lord willing. Uh, But let me pray, and then I will read this benediction to us, and then our congregational response uh, is Psalm 117. You can see printed in your bulletin. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do give you thanks that uh, there is this congregation, Lord, I mean this in no way whatsoever as boasting. Lord, we realize that anything that we have uh, comes from you, the Father of lights, that no one can have anything unless it's given them from above. Father, we thank you for the faithful men and women that you've put in this congregation over the decades. Lord, we ask that you would continue to. Uh, we thank you for uh, Our head pastor for for Matt, we pray that you would continue to give him grace to work hard to teach what your word teaches, Lord, that you'd be with the session to teach what your word teaches, no matter how unpopular it becomes with the culture, Lord, or even the larger evangelical church at large, that we'd be faithful to you as you show us uh, yourself and your word, Lord, that we'd be faithful uh, to seeking to live out your word as well, Lord, Uh, rubbing elbows with other believers, encouraging those who are down, uh, and even admonishing those when need be. Uh, Lord, you've been gracious. Would we uh, give reverence to your word? Lord, please, uh, we recognize all these things as coming from you. Um, Would you continue to be with us? Would you continue to be with our denomination? We thank you for the graciousness you've shown over the last several years in our denomination. We pray that you continue to do so. And be with us, Lord, we ask. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.